The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Don't you just want to get a recording of Jen's voice for the entire, like anything that we ever read? Um, her voice is just so, so awesome. Um, if you have your Bible, I would love for you to open it to Revelation chapters four and five today. Um, here's, here's what we're going to be talking about. Um, in Revelations four and five, the door to heaven opens and John is met by an onslaught of sight and sound. And amidst all of that, what we would think of as chaos is a throne. And the one that's seated on the throne is holding a scroll. And on that scroll contains the answer to the question, how is God going to save the world? That's Revelation 4 and 5. Um, I want to remind you of a couple things. Um, Revelation is apocalyptic, prophetic letter. So the word apocalypse um, is, is a literary genre that the people of this day would have been familiar with. So when they cracked open a letter that was apocalyptic, they would have understood all of the symbols and all of the things taking place. And, and what this apocalypse is doing, what this revealing is doing, it is telling us the heavenly realities of what we experience here on earth. So kind of think of it this way. In the midst of our daily lives, the successes, the good things that we have happen to us, as well as all of the hardships and realities, there's something else going on. There's something behind the scenes. And what's really interesting about that concept of something behind the scenes is we find that in all sorts of, of popular culture. Um, this movie's a little old. Who remembers the movie The Matrix? Okay, so there was something happening right? That was a perception of reality, but there was something really going on behind the scenes. Does that make sense? Literature and movies are filled with that kind of mindset. Like that's part of our, that's part of our culture. And I think we all know, whether you're a Christian or not, we all know that there's something greater than us. We all know there's something else taking place. And this was even revealed. Um, I know it's brand new. I like I'm always a little sketchy when I, talk about, um, when I talk about what some people consider spoilers, right? Because I'm of the opinion, if a show comes out on Wednesday and it's Sunday and you haven't watched it yet, um, I just have a question. Like, I just wonder, I just question what your problem is if you haven't picked it up yet. So Loki just hit Disney Plus. And this really isn't a big spoiler, okay? But there's this, but there's this behind the scenes group um, called the Time Variance Agency, running all things. And it's just so interesting to me that, that no matter what we watch, there's always something else. In Star Wars, that was called the Force, right? There's something behind it all. And here's what, here's what Revelation is doing. Here's what this apocalypse is doing. It's revealing what's really happening in heaven. And it's important to know that the text that we're like gonna read today in Revelation chapter four, we're gonna talk about worship a little bit. 
It's important to know that, that what we're going to read about in Revelation chapter 4 is actually happening right now. So when we, when we do our thing on Sunday morning, and music is, is such, a, such a minor part of, of what we, or of what is considered worship. When we praise God on Sunday morning, what we're doing is we're joining in that worship. That's what we're called to do. So Revelation is apocalyptic. It's also prophetic. Um, God's word expressed through mankind, and this frequently uses the images of the Old Testament, and we're going to see that again today as well. So the people who are receiving this letter, which we're going to talk about in a second, the people who are receiving this letter, um, like Jen talked about all of these different creatures with six wings covered with eyes, right? And we're all like, what does that mean? Well, just go back and read Ezekiel and Daniel and you'll see what it means. Like this is, these are consistent things. These are consistent images, right? That God is utilizing to communicate certain things. And then lastly, they're letters. These letters were written to seven specific churches in Asia Minor. It was written to them. We talk about this all the time. The Bible's not written to us, but it's for us. Okay? And in a, in a, in a book like Revelation, in a letter like Revelation, we know that because it says to the church at Laodicea. So this letter is written to them. And some of these churches were filled with apathetic and morally compromised people. And others were suffering from, from the harassment that comes along when you defy the government, which is something we'll be talking more about over the next, um, over the next several weeks. So that's what's going on here. And this, this apocalyptic letter pre- presents a number of stark realities to us, presents a number of truths to us, for us, right? So we read these things and we're wondering what we're supposed to do with it. Some of the things we can take away because it's for us is Jesus knows who you really are. Remember his, his, his introduction in every one of the letters. He said, I know something about you. I know who you are. I know where you live. I know what's really going on. And we have to be reminded that God knows who we really are, regardless of who who you say you are, regardless of how you might identify in your relationship with God. One of the things that we see in the book of Revelation is God knows who we really are. And he's not fooled by us. Another thing that's pointed out in these seven letters to those churches and for us is that trial and tribulation is coming. Trial and tribulation is coming. And here's the thing. Your, your, that trial and tribulation is going to out you. Does that make sense? So, so if, I, if I say I'm a Christian, but I'm really not, when trial and tribulation comes and I flee God's people, I flee the church. I run from my relationship with God because it's too costly. See, trial and tribulation is going to out you for who you really are. Which is really strange because the places where the church is growing the most in the world is in places where there is trial and tribulation. Like that doesn't make any sense to us. See, we would, 
our little Western construct would think that the church grows when, when the government is supportive of us. When the government gives us what we want. Well, that's not reality. So that ought to shape the way we think about the interaction between Christianity and the government. Not that we want trial and tribulation, not that we want persecution to come upon us. I don't want that. But the reality is the church grows amidst persecution because all of the people who who aren't really Christians, they're outed. Because in countries like Iran and in countries like China, where the government says, you cannot attend this gathering, who's, who's going to go to that? The people that are really in, right? The people, who, the people who are fearing that persecution, they're not going to show up. So persecution and trial and tribulation is going to out us. And here's the thing, we... We have the opportunity, we have been given, these churches, each of them were given the opportunity and we have the opportunity to decide every single day what choice we're going to make. Are we gonna compromise with the world? Are we gonna give in or are we gonna remain faithful? Because those are the only two choices. This is what we're going to get into here over the next several weeks is as the seals are opened and the trumpets blast, we're going to come to the conclusion that there's only two sides. It's compromise or faithfulness. And God knows. And we are given this choice. And this is, this is one of the best things I love talking about as as the church, we are given this choice because the church plays a special role in the redemptive work of God. See, when this comes to us, this challenge comes to us and we choose faithfulness, we are joining in what God is doing to save the world. He's already done that through Jesus and we simply get to be his mouthpiece. We get to be his demonstration of what faithfulness looks like. And what we're going to see as we shift gears next week, we're going to see that a faithful church is the witness that the world needs. Not necessarily a resisting church from a violent standpoint, and this will make more sense then, but a faithful church is what the world needs to see. They need to see people who don't compromise they need to see us embodying what Jesus did, who Jesus was. And we have a mission, and our mission is to, is to simply love. Because if you read the, the last chapter in the book, Christ has won. Christ has won. And what that means is, is that that frees me up from the need to go out and just fight a whole bunch of battles because Jesus has already won. What this does is this frees me up to love people who are different than me. What this does is this frees us up to love people who aren't followers of Christ. 
We just get to love them. We just get to show mercy and grace and kindness. And we absolutely want to be truthful and we want to be honest. But we just get to love people. We just get to do what Jesus did. Earlier in his life, John, the same guy that wrote the book of Revelation in 1 John 4, 11 and 12, if you're using the YouVersion app, which I encourage you to do, like you'll just see all of these verses in there. But in 1 John 4, 11 and 12, John wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Since God loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. You've heard me say that verse a lot over the past several months. I just, I love it so much. No one's ever seen God. Here's the John Mulholland. This is a paraphrase, not a translation. Here's the John Mulholland paraphrase. No one has ever seen God, but when they see us acting in ways that demonstrate we have been affected by Jesus Christ, they see God through us. Isn't that awesome? That, peop, that, that we are introducing people to the character and the nature of God. That sounds like a pretty big responsibility, doesn't it? Like what, what kind of God are we portraying with our lives? Are we demonstrating the reality of the God of the Bible? Or are we portraying a, a moralistic cop God? Like who exactly are we imaging? And this, this gets into our understanding of what salvation is, especially when we read a book like Revelation. Because so many of us are, are tempted to, to think of to think of the Bible with an individualistic perspective, right? We think about our own deliverance. We think about our own salvation. And this mindset gives us this, um, a friend of mine many years ago gave me this cool little phrase, jettison and abandon. This mindset of, of an individualistic salvation gives us this jettison and abandon mindset. And here's what that means. If you've ever seen a sci-fi movie where the space station that they're on is going to blow up, right? And there's these escape pods, right? And everyone's going to the escape pod, right? And there's always one left with somebody who's on there and he's waving everybody in. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Like we think that that's God waving us to this escape pod so we can all get the heck out of this planet and just watch it blow up from a distance, Man, Revelation just completely challenges that theory. Christians, um, you're not going anywhere. And we're gonna maybe talk about that in a few weeks. But we are here. God has called us to be here. God has called us to love people. God has call, not called us to have a mindset of, we're getting out of here anyway, so who cares? And I know that we probably wouldn't come out and say that. But I've talked to so many people, so many Christians who believe, like, that's what they're saying subtly. That we're just going to leave. We're just going to get out of here. 
So why does it matter? Well, that does not show a lot of love and kindness to the people that were around. If our mindset is, I just can't wait to get out of here. Can you imagine that? Imagine someone coming to your house for a birthday party and they walk in and they're like, oh man, I just can't wait to leave. I mean, we've all thought that, right? But our mindset as Christians should not be, I can't wait to leave. But I, I can't wait to share the good news of Jesus with all of these people so that I can spend eternity with them. Let's read again Revelation 4, 1 to 11. Um, last week, uh, before we do that, last week, John Thomas, in his um, communion meditation, read um, the end of Revelation 3 to us. The, this was the letter to the church at Laodicea. And neat little transition. These are the things, like, when we read the Bible, we forget that no one added um, chapter and verse divisions until much later. Okay, so when John wrote Revelation, um, he wasn't putting a little number above little verses. This is verse 20 from chapter three. Look, I stand at the door and knock. And if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together. Those who are victorious will sit with me on, the, on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. And then how does chapter four begin? Then as I looked, I saw what? A door standing open in heaven. And the same voice I heard before, me, before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here and I will show you must, what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the spirit and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Remember, this is happening right now. Like, now. This is heaven. 24 thrones surrounded them and 24 elders sat on them. They were clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. The fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings and their wings were covered all over with eyes inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they kept keep on saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the almighty, who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Whenever the living beings Gave, give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their throne, the crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. Last week in our elders meeting as we got ready to talk about this text. Um, 
I said, you know, John goes, goes to heaven. He gets this vision of heaven and there's all of these things taking place and there's this throne and um, on the throne is not John. It's not John on the throne. And then Dave Parrish um, very quickly said, yes, and it's also not nobody. So Revelation 4, in chapter 4, the focus of Revelation is on the throne. And on that throne, we, we are learning that there is someone in charge of all things. And this someone is worthy of our worship. I want you to imagine this scene. All of reality. That's, that's the image. Because what John is trying to do is he's seeing all of, the, all of these sights and hearing all of these sounds. And he's trying to figure out, like, how do I write all of this down? Could you imagine being John in that moment? The only, the, the closest image that I could come up with. How many of you have seen the movie, The Wizard of Oz? Now I'm really going back. Do you remember the scene when Dorothy lands in Oz and she opens the door and it's color. Like when, I, when I'm reading this, like that's, that's what's going through my mind. So I actually hopped on YouTube really quick and I found that, right? Because I, I wanted to see. And can you imagine writing all of that down? What's happening here is, is Jesus is, is pulling the curtain back on reality. He's pulling the curtain back on a throne. And at the center of all things, what John learns is it's not him. And here's what you need to hear today. And it's what I need to hear every waking moment of my life. At the center of all things is not you either. I think that's something that we sort of know but I don't think that it's something that we always necessarily believe, that life is not about us. Think about for a moment how, how quickly, how easy it is for us to array all of our lives around ourselves. Like this morning, um, so we have this policy in our house, okay? It's more of a guideline than a policy. But um, when we turn the furnace off, we wait 30 days before we turn the air conditioner on, right? So if it's 1,000 degrees in the house, the AC is not coming on prior to 30 days. Like, it's just not. And then we have the flip of that in the summertime, right? When we turn the air conditioner off at the end of summer, I don't care how cold it gets. We are not turning that furnace on for 30 days, okay? And my wife and I, we are aligned with that mentality, Okay, because we want two, because we want two months of like a relatively low energy bill. Well, we're way past that 30 days. So I think we, we were like five days into it. And Anne's like, can we turn the air on yet? Have we passed the 30 days? And I was like, woman, we've been past that 30 days for like a week. See, when we get, when we get cold, like we can array our life around the furnace. Okay, and I'm not saying don't use your, the air conditioner or the heat in your house. I'm just saying we are so accustomed to organizing everything in our lives around our own comfort that sometimes we forget that life is not about us. 
And it's not just our heating or our air conditioning in our house. It's everything. It's the way we gather together on Sunday morning, right? That, that, that desire for preference overpowers the reality that when we're singing the songs that we were singing a little while ago, like I'm trying to make a point when I said that this is happening right now, when we do this on a Sunday morning and we sing songs, we're joining in this crowd. So like when we're kind of paying lip service to the, to the mindset of like, this is what heaven's like and we're not really engaged I just have to wonder, do we understand what's going on here? Do we understand that, that we're joining, we're supposed to be joining in this praise of God? And I wonder how, how your mindset would change, how my mindset would change. Is if, if we recognize that what we were doing here on a Sunday morning was joining in with this crew in total and complete worship of God. Because we're not the center of the universe. We're just not. And why does why do we get this after the letters? What is Jesus trying to communicate through John? Why does this vision right now matter of who's in charge? Well, because because hard times are about to come to the church in Revelation. I've suggested, I've asked you, and I'm gonna do it again. Like, I would love for you to read the book of Revelation every, every week during this series. It'll take you 90 minutes. Last week when I said that, I don't remember who it was, but it's like somebody non-verbally was like, 90 minutes, that sounds like forever. Right, and then I just think about how much I binge watch Netflix this week. See, if you've read the book of Revelation, especially if you read the chapters immediately following this, all hell is about to break loose on earth. And what God is doing, what God is revealing is he's in charge. So, so when this comes on you, church, God's in charge. He's on the throne. They needed to know that there was someone who is higher than the government of Rome in charge of their lives. And that identity, and we're going to read that in a moment, is God. And I think some of us, in whatever hardship and reality and situation and circumstance that we're dealing with, like you need to hear that God is in charge, God's on the throne. Regardless of what it looks like, and this is why this, this difference of space matters. This is why we're talking about revelation in the way that we are, that it pulls back the curtain on reality. Because when we make life about ourselves, we get so caught up in our immediate situations and circumstances and our hardships. And we wonder if, if we're ever, ever, ever gonna make it through this. And, and here's what John does is he pulls back the curtain and he says, look, look. For a minute, take your eyes off of yourself. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't care. 
We're going to read about that in chapter five. God does care. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. But there's something more important than our circumstance. So if chapter four wants us to know that we are not on the throne, chapter five wants us to know who is. And as Dave Parrish so perfectly said last week, it's not nobody. And God introduces the the identity of this character in a really strange way. Let's read uh, chapter five, verses one to three. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was open, was able to open the scroll and read it. John introduces the one on the throne by talking about a scroll. So what's our question? What's on the scroll? Right? What's on the scroll? It's got writing on both sides. It's sealed tightly with seven seals, exactly like a Roman will would have been rolled up and sealed. Some people think it's a type of legal document. Some people believe it's the Old Testament. In the Old Testament books of Ezekiel and Daniel, and this is why it's so important for us as Christians to know the Old Testament, to be familiar with the Old Testament. This goes back to this type of literature, right? Where we're using language of the Old Testament to describe a reality for us. In the books of Ezekiel and Daniel, scrolls sealed in this way often contained God's plans and declarations. They often explained the mysteries of God's plans for judgment and salvation. So Daniel and Ezekiel, they would get this scroll and it would, it would be unveiled and it would detail what God was going to do next. So they would have picked up on that. And for us, our 21st century mindset, right? We're like, what's on the scroll? Well, it's revealing God's plans and purposes. How things are going to unfold. Imagine being in the first century church for a moment where the government is coming against you. And it's not just the government. We talked about this several weeks ago. It's not just the government that's come against you, but when you don't participate in who and how the government worships, all of the people who are, they start to come against you, right? They start to persecute you, your friends and neighbors, because you're not worshiping Caesar like we're supposed to worship Caesar. So your entire culture comes against you. And if that's you, And the entire Roman Empire is aligned against you with all of its might and all of its power. You're starting to ask questions like, how is God going to save the world? How is all of this going to be made right? When is this going to be fixed? How can I have hope? And see, there in, in the hand 
of the ultimate being in the entire universe is a scroll, is a document with the answers to to that question. And in verse four, it says, then I, John, began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. Why is John crying? Why is he having this emotional breakdown? Because the answers to the questions of life are on that scroll and no one can open it. Let me ask you a question. Why do you cry amidst hardships and realities? Why do you break down in the midst of those anxieties? Because we want to know the answers to those questions too. But here's how we talk about them. How am I possibly going to survive without my spouse? We were together for decades. Cancer is back. My children have rejected their faith. See, these are the things that drive us to despair. These are the things that drive us to ask ultimate questions. How is God going to make all of this right? And John is filled with this despair because the answers are on that piece of paper and no one can open it. And this is how a lot of us respond to that despair. We think back to chapter four and we knock God off of his throne and we place ourselves on it. We try to take control of our own lives. Why? Because we think we have all the answers. We think we know what God should do. So we place ourselves on that throne. We decide that we want to assume control over our own lives. When we feel the weight of the realities and situations and circumstances of life, instead of worshiping the one who's on the throne, we worship ourselves. What could possibly go wrong? All we have to do is look at the world in which we live in. And we see nothing but, for many people, them simply worshiping themselves. Setting themselves up on the throne. And the chaos and the death and the destruction is just a byproduct of someone other than God being on the throne. And we see this all the time. And the reality is, we are pathetic gods. You are a terrible God. And I am a terrible God. And the throne on which I sit is is a joke. Like the best I can do, the best I can do to control my environment is, is adjust the thermostat. And then like on that really hot day last week, last Sunday, like for whatever reason, Um, like the air conditioner was on outside, but it wasn't blowing inside. So like, I can't even control that. See, what we have in our lives is we have this, this semblance of control. 
There's just, like, there's just enough of a hint of control that we have in our own lives that makes us think that we're the kings of the world. But we're not. We're not in charge. God is. So who can open the scroll? Verse five from chapter five. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and it's seven seals. See, there's a lion strong enough to open the scroll and the seven seals. And what's really strange is um, John turns to look at this lion because we all would, right? Like when there's a lion, like we all want to look at a lion. John turns and instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb. Now, a lot of translations say that was slain, which, which makes that sound like really antiseptic, like really clean. But the Greek actually means slaughtered. Now, for those of you with an agricultural background, if you've ever slaughtered an animal, it's not clean. What John sees on in front of him is this lamb that is bloodied and slaughtered with seven eyes and seven horns. How is God going to save the world? How did God save the world? A slaughtered lamb. That's the answer to the question. God saved the world through a slaughtered lamb, through sacrificial love. And this is why everyone and everything in the room turns to worship him. Let's read. This is verses 9 to 14. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all, all of the people who could not open the scroll. They sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb of God forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the lamb. See, while Jesus is the fierce lion of Judah, it is through the humble sacrifice of Jesus, the lamb of God, that our sins are taken away. It's through worshiping him that we, individuals and the church, when we worship God, we find our rightful place in the universe. We acknowledge our rightful place in the universe. We join him as, as co-conspirators in the way that he is saving the world. When we recognize 
that we are not on the throne and he is. We are submitting to his authority. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes for a second. Just ask you a couple questions. If we were to have an open door to the heaven of your life, who would be on the throne? Because there's something that's on that throne. There is something that every single one of us have arrayed our lives around. And the question that we have to ask is, what's, our li- what's your life about? Is it success or affirmation or comfort, preference, power, peace? Is it about the perfect relationship? What's the thing that's receiving ultimate worship from you? If you could just be honest for a moment and you know that it's not God on the throne. If you know that, that it's you on the throne and you are setting up the entirety of your life trying to rule and reign. If you know that you've never cast your crowns off at the feet of Jesus and you're just sick of that life of worshiping something other than God, if that's you and you know that someone other than God is on the throne of your life and you've never given your life to him, would you raise your hand today? Can you put your hands down? I think there are two kinds of people that, that raised their hands. First is someone who's a follower of Christ and they've, um, they've just drifted away. And if that's you, your invitation, it's, it's really simple. Just repent of your sin. You know, we have a God who, um, who is loving and kind and gracious, and he just forgives us. Like we can just go to him. And we can just ask for his forgiveness. And then maybe you're a person who's never actually given your life to Christ. This is an opportunity for you to have your life changed by Jesus. To acknowledge that you're not in charge. And for those of us in the room that that need to be in charge, isn't that just exhausting? To constantly have to be in charge. If you've never made that decision, um, I would just love to talk with you today at the end of our time together. And we can talk about what that looks like to be a follower of Christ. I'm just gonna end here. There's someone who is on the throne of all things. It's not you. And it's not no one. It's the God of the universe. And he knows how all this is gonna work out. 
And as we talk next week, as we look into the next several chapters of the book of Revelation, we're going to see what that looks like. We're going to see what happens when the righteousness of God collides with the sinfulness of mankind. And if you've read through the next several chapters of the book of Revelation and you're like, that is, there's some crazy stuff happening there. The question is, like, what do you think is going to happen when God's righteousness collides with man's sinfulness? And the good news is, is God has already won. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that you, we praise you for being on the throne of the universe. We praise you for who you are. God, I pray that we would repent of our sin when we seek that throne. When we seek to knock you off of it and replace you. God, we're thankful for the opportunity that we have to repent. We're thankful that we can have confidence in your grace that you do forgive us, that we cannot outsin your grace. And I just ask for strength for us. to be obedient to you on the throne. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.